John chapter 1 in the week before, which was the mystery of the gospel being unfolded. The word became flesh. Verses 1 through 18, the mystery. Now we're starting the history portion of John's gospel. The story itself of when Jesus first touched down in Galilee, meeting and calling his first disciples. The story. Chapter 1, verses 19 through chapter 2, verse 11, is the first seven days of Jesus' public ministry as recorded by John. One week in Jesus' life, and we get a glimpse of every single day of what he did. This is more important than the president's first week of the United States or the president's first 100 days or any human's entire life as recorded. This is the life of Jesus, the Son of God. Day one, the testimony of John the Baptist, which we'll read in just a moment. Day seven, if you fast forward, the changing of the water to wine at the wedding in Cana when Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples. John, the gospel writer, is asking this question, giving this testimony to us. Who is the Savior of the world? Who will save us from ourselves and our sin? Who is the Messiah? And he answers the question and tells us, it's Jesus Christ. And he says at the end of his gospels, we've looked at the past few weeks in John 20, verse 30. I'm writing these things to you so that you might know and believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And in believing in his name, have eternal life. Let's read this testimony of John the Baptist, recorded by John the Apostle. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we've heard the witness now of John the Baptist. We've heard these words in your scriptures. Help us to believe and receive Jesus, the Son of God. Help us to be witnesses like John. Not to the great things that we do or want to do, but help us be witnesses to the greatest man that's ever lived. The God-man, the Messiah, 
the one greater than Moses, the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king, Jesus Christ. Help us to believe and in His name have eternal life. And in His name, go in power and share that life with our neighbors. And we ask this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. You may be seated. John is answering the question, who am I? At the beginning of this testimony. John says, you want to know who I am? And he tells the leaders, the priests and Levites who come from Jerusalem. Then he asks us, who do you think Jesus is? And he explains who that is. And the question that we'll also ask ourselves at the end of the day is, who are we in light of this testimony? But I want to start by asking that question. Who are you? How do you define yourself? How do you identify It's a common phrase people ask today. How do you identify? People have different answers for that. How do you identify? What makes you tick? What what drives you? What is your passion in life? What gives you significance? What makes you feel esteemed in the eyes of others? What are you looking for to satisfy yourself and even to save you? from an ordinary life or from who you are. John gives us the testimony of who he says he is, who Jesus is, and by implication, who we are. Let's look at that now to see what God would have for us as we ask, who am I? How do I identify? John says this, when the leaders came from Jerusalem, sent by perhaps the Sadducees, who were like the Supreme Court of Jerusalem, they sent priests who were working the temple, you know, they're the religious affairs people, And then they sent Levites, who were like the assistants to the priests. They they say, we've heard of John, now we need to know for sure, who is this? John, who are you? And no, they're asking John, who actually is a Levite as well. And his father was a priest, Zechariah, remember that story in Luke's gospel? Before the birth of Jesus? It tells us about John's birth. John was a priest, John was a Levite. And they say to him, what gives you the right to baptize? You've got to be somebody really important. Maybe you're Elijah or... Maybe you're the Messiah himself, or maybe you're the one greater than Moses that we're expecting. Now, John the Baptist could have easily been confused for Elijah, because Malachi chapter 4 said that there was one coming in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah would return again, metaphorically, and here comes John looking just retro enough to be Elijah, right? How is he dressed? Got the camel leather on, you know, the, the robe. Can you imagine a leather robe? You know, camel fur, like a fur coat. You know, I'm not, I'm not thinking about like a prosperity preacher with rings and a fur coat. I'm, I'm thinking about something more simple than that. And a camel belt tied around his waist. And he's organic. He's eating, what, locusts and wild honey. You know, no preservatives, no pesticides. This guy looks just like Elijah because that's how Elijah dressed. And that's what Elijah did. He was out of the wilderness, living off the land, preaching the word, thus saith the Lord. And they ask him, John, are you Elijah? And he says, No. They say, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're waiting for to save us from the Romans who have taken over the entire world, basically, of our day, and they've they've taken over Israel? Are you going to save us? Are you the the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, the savior of our people? He confessed and did not deny, but emphasizing, he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they're wondering, well, who are you? Are you the prophet? And, And they're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, where prophesied was to be one greater than Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, 
I will raise up someone greater than you who will listen and speak all of my words and do everything that I command him. And this was essentially the Messiah. And, and he says, no, I'm not that great prophet who would be greater than Moses himself. Not me. No. And they said, well, well, give us an answer. We have to check off our religious boxes. We have to go back and complete these forms and give them to the priest back in Jerusalem. Who are you, John? What do you say about yourself? And he says in verse 23, what? I'm the voice. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Moses. I'm just the voice. Now, you've seen commercials, right, where you hear a voice, but you don't see anybody? No, there's, there's somebody behind that voice, but you don't ever see them. Why? Because they're not maybe the superstar. They're not someone famous. Maybe they're not someone who wants to be on camera, but they have that voice that speaks volumes. It's authoritative. Maybe it's, it's a voice selling soap, or maybe it's selling a car. Or maybe you've watched a movie and you hear the narrator's voice in the background, but you never see that person. This is who John is. This is his role. He's just a messenger. He's just an ambassador. He's just the commentator. He's just telling us about the real Messiah, the real one who is greater than Elijah and Moses. John is the voice. And what's he crying out? He's crying out in the wilderness. Literally, he lived in the wilderness, and people came out to be baptized by him. But he's literally crying out in this world, which is a wilderness place, so full of pain. And he's saying to people who are asking, who am I? And who will save me from this? He's saying, I will point the way to salvation. Because he says, quoting Isaiah 40, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, the Lord Yahweh, who will come and all flesh shall see him. Now we know from the past few weeks that no one has ever seen the Lord, right? But Yahweh, the Lord, the invisible one, the immortal one, he will come. The word will become made flesh and there will be a highway. I'm going to build a highway that that knocks all the tall mountains down that stand in the way of the Lord. I'm going to raise up all the potholes in the valleys so he can have a smooth pathway. So that the Lord will come. John didn't work for the Judean Department of Transportation. He's talking about two things happening. Isaiah's prophecy and Isaiah 40 are talking about the exiles returning home from Babylon. The Jewish people have been ripped out of their homeland, thrown into a foreign land for 70 years. Many Israelites were born there and knew nothing other than that. And then they were replanted in their land. And, and, and Isaiah says, we're going to raise the highways and make them smooth for the exiles to come back into the, the land of the Lord's glory, Israel. But there's something much greater, of course, being mentioned, and that's what John picks up on here. There's another time coming when the Messiah would come, and we're going to actually see the Lord himself come to earth and dwell here among us. The word will become flesh and make his dwelling among us, and we'll see his glory. And I'm just the one announcing the way. I'm the ambassador to the king, preparing the way for Yahweh. That's my identity. That's who I am. I'm just the voice. I'm humble. But I have authority because the next question they asked him is, what gives you the right to baptize? Why are you, how are you baptizing? In verse 20, 25, if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet. Now, what does that tell you if they're saying, if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the Moses, how are you baptizing? What does that tell you about baptism? Talk to me. Come on. Can anybody do it? Can anybody be a self-proclaimed baptizer and get online and get one of those online ordination degrees? Now I'm going to baptize myself and everybody else. This was a specific role given authority. Now, there were Jewish sects back then, like little groups and cliques of Jewish people. Some of them lived in the caves of Quran out in the desert. And some of these Jewish folks would baptize themselves. Like if they were converts to Judaism, they would, they would baptize themselves. Some of them actually baptized themselves every day. 
to show repentance and dedication to God. Now, in the days where you didn't take a shower every day, that's pretty, pretty significant. But most people would see if you're baptizing yourself, it's kind of standard. Everybody's doing that, you know, among these different groups in Judaism. But to say, I'm going to baptize you, come to me and I will tell you that your sins are forgiven if you repent of them and believe in my message, that was unheard of. How can you baptize? You must have serious authority. And he says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Moses. So how are you doing this? He says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that's a sign and I'm pointing you to a greater reality. That's what I'm doing. I'm just the messenger pointing you to the message. I'm just the uh, stagehand putting the spotlight on the main actor of all history. Yeah, I have authority. Of course, he says, I baptize you with water in verse 26. In verse 33, he says, God sent me to baptize with water. This is authorized by God, but I'm going to tell you, my baptism is very dim compared to the light you're about to see breaking into the world through the true Messiah, the true Baptist. Now he says, though I have authority, I have no right, even as a humble servant, even to reach out and touch the feet of my Lord. Now, as we saw with the children being dismissed, feet were a very holy thing in, in ancient times. Even in some Eastern cultures today, one time I had a friend who's from India. And one of my friends who's from Louisiana uh, jokingly reached out when he was standing next to her. She was sitting on the ground. She, he was wearing sandals. And she reached out and like, kind of like playfully patted his foot when she made a joke. And he like jumped out of the way and said, woman, do not touch my feet anymore. These are special feet. You know, they're holy. They're like honorable. You don't touch someone's feet. It's a transgression. And, and in those days, as I said, even servants would often not be asked to take off their master's shoes. Only the lowest servants would take a shoe off. And Jesus showed us how low he went in John chapter 13 when he did what? Washed his disciples' feet. But John said, okay, here's the master of the universe coming down to be a slave to wash my feet, but I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps or carry them for him. You wouldn't even ask your slave to do that, but he says, I'm not even worthy to do what a slave won't do. I, I should be doing it all, but I'm not even worthy to do that. I have all authority from God to baptize, but it's an incredibly humble authority. I'm unworthy. He's the Lord. I'm the servant. Or in John 3, he would say, I'm just the groomsman, and he's the groom. Marrying his bride, the church. He says, when, when the bride and the groom come down the aisle, what, what does the wedding party do up front? They say, oh, excuse me. Actually, I want to be at the center of this event. I mean, I went and paid for this, you know, tux or this dress. It's cost a lot of money. I want, to be, I want to be cutting the cake. I want myself in all the pictures. No, he says, we set it up for the bride and the groom, and then we step out of the way, and we celebrate them. He says in John 3, I must decrease and he must increase. I'm, I am the Baptist, but I'm preparing the way for the true baptizer, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you again, who are you? Think about John's testimony. He's answering the question, who am I? Look at John's example and ask, who are you? In light of John, who are you? Jesus said John was the greatest born among women in the world. He's the greatest man ever born, the most faithful, the best prophet, however you want to say this. But he says even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Even the least person that gets into heaven's kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. 
So when you think about the greatest man that ever lived who said, I'm not worthy to touch Jesus' feet. I just want to be in the background, shining the spotlight on him. How does that relate to how you feel about yourself? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Are you trying to exert your own authority? Are you trying to to be someone important? Do you get easily offended when people put you down or ignore you? When it's not all about you? John says, I identify as a servant. That's how I identify. He says, stop asking me who I am. No, I'm not the Messiah. No, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. It's not about me. I'm just a stagehand. I'm just behind the scenes. I'm behind the curtain. You can't see me anymore. After this first couple days that we're going to look at today, next week, Joe's going to preach on day three, which is verse 37. Pretty soon, John's disciples started following Jesus. Did he get jealous? He said, wait a minute, guys. I mean, I'm still your rabbi, right? Like, no, he was intentionally getting out of the way. He disappears after chapter three in John's gospel. This is his job. To, to exalt Christ and to fade into the background. Is that true of you? Is that true of who you are? Now John takes us to the real heart of the matter, which is who is Jesus. To answer the question, who am I? We have to answer, who is Jesus? And this is why John answered his questioning by saying, I'm nothing because he was comparing himself to Christ. So who is Jesus? Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He's prepared a pathway. He's prepared a highway for the Lord, the coming of the glory of the Lord. Now here comes Jesus literally walking down the road. John has prepared the way for him. And he says, look, there he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. Who is Jesus? The sin-removing Lamb of God. Now, in verse 25, the first time John um, mentions that he doesn't really know who Jesus is, um, in verse 26 actually, it's important to recognize that John was not saying, I don't know who Jesus is, period. He was saying, I never knew the extent. I never knew the magnitude. I don't know how, how actually holy and worthy he is until now that it's been revealed to me by God's own spirit. And when I saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove, then I knew that he was God's chosen son. Who is he? He's the Lamb of God. Now I know. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is it about a lamb that's so important? Why would he not say, behold the lion, or behold the perfect one, or behold the sinless man, or behold the glorious one? The lamb is very important. Jewish people would have had many scriptures in the Old Testament. It was just fertile with references to lambs and and just... Think of a few of them with me. Genesis 22. Abraham, up on the mountain, told to sacrifice his very son Isaac, binding him, putting him on that altar with with kindling wood and and firewood. And, And just as he's raising the knife to plunge it into his son's chest, the angel says, stop, Abraham, stop. Look, I've provided a ram caught in the thicket. This will be your sacrifice. The Lord provides the Lamb of God. Or Exodus chapter 12, when the people of Israel were leaving their slavery, where they've been, been in bondage for 400 years. And here is the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. I will smite or strike down every firstborn in Egypt because they are 
holding my people back from worshiping me and from the freedom I've given them. And what does God say to his people? Take a lamb. Slaughter the lamb. Spread the blood on the doorposts. Maybe even on the bottom threshold. And you're completely covered in a sacrificial offering on your behalf so that you will not die. But the Egyptians will die for their sins. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Or think about Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb toward the slaughter. Who? The suffering servant of the Lord. He did not open his mouth when they accused him, when they bound him, when they beat him, when they crucified him. He did not open his mouth in protest. But he was silent. As a sheep before her shearers is silent. And upon him the Lord laid upon him all of our iniquities. And he crushed him for our healing. And he wounded him. And by his stripes we are healed. The suffering lamb. That's who's coming down the road. That's who I see coming. Is this offering, this substitute, this great Passover. In 1 Peter chapter 2 says what John says here. He bears our sin on his own body on the tree. He comes to bear your sin and to take them away from you. He comes to pay for your sin and mine. Or Leviticus 16. In the law there was given on the Day of Atonement an opportunity for the people to confess their sins upon another substitute who would be sent away from the camp out to the wilderness. And, and this was the, called the scapegoat. The priest would take the sins of the people and confess them over the goat's head. He would lay his hands on the goat's head and transfer Symbolically, the sins of the people into this animal. And then they would lead the goat away and abandon him into the wilderness. A picture of what Jesus did for us. Bearing our sin, taking it outside the city gates of Jerusalem, into the wilderness. All that we had, he owned it. He took it away. Revelation 7, verse 17. The lamb was also called our shepherd. The lamb of God is our shepherd. And what will he do? He will bear our sins away and he will also wipe our tears away. Revelation 17, verse 14. He's a warrior lamb. It says the whole world will make war against Jesus, the Lamb of God. But he will defeat them. Because he is the Lord of Lords. And the what? You guys are really disappointing me. I need some interaction today. He's the Lord of Lords. And the what? King of Kings. Kings. If you're getting sleepy, do what you need to to stay awake. Okay? Within reason, do what you need to. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, lambs in those days were not raised to be pets, I'm sorry to say. Cotton ball, fluffy, lamb chops. The only reason you call it lamb chops is if you're going to eat the lamb. Because lambs were only used for two things in ancient Israel. Food or sacrifice, and sometimes both. Sacrifice the Passover lamb and then eat the roasted lamb as you wait for the Passover angel, the death angel, to come through Egypt is what God said to the people to do. The only reason John focuses on Jesus as the lamb is because he's focused on this one theme of sacrifice. This is what lambs were for in the Old Testament. Sacrifice. And he says, behold, the lamb. That means the one who sacrifices, the one who takes away our sin. This is who I'm talking about. Now, he he very quickly says right after that in verse 27, he comes after me. So, like, I was born first. And I'm the older cousin, John says. So, I was actually born first, but... He precedes me in rank. He is higher than me in honor. And he he comes before me. Even though he was born after me, he comes before me. How does that work out? He's already told us in John chapter 1. The word in the beginning was with God. He's the eternal God. So, So why of all the things that John could have chosen from all eternity to say about Jesus, 
and all of his life on earth, why would he pick this one thing to say to introduce him? He's the lamb. Because the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus is the central theme of the good news. This is what he's witnessing too. He's not just saying, well, Jesus will do miracles. That's great. He's not just saying Jesus will uh, heal a broken heart and when you're sad, he'll make you joyful again. That's amazing. But what he says is the central theme and his main point in opening up his story is this is the man who will take away your sins and no other person in history could ever do that. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the true Lamb who welcomes us into a relationship with the Father, through His Holy Spirit. And John says, let's focus on Him. When we think about our identity, we must get this right. We must say, who am I? John says, I am who I am in relation to the crucified one. What did Paul say? I boast only in what? The cross. Christ crucified. That's what I preach. Christ crucified. Brothers and sisters, let me just ask you, when, when someone says, who are you, or how, how do you identify? Do you, does your mind go towards the cross? Does you, do you have a cruciform life? Does your, is your life shaped by the cross? Do you walk and live in the shadow of the cross? That's what John's life is about. I pray that's what our lives will be about. He's, he's not only the Lamb of God, but then he's the Spirit-approved chosen one. So John says, okay, you remember the story of the baptism of Jesus? He doesn't record it here, but the other Gospels do. Remember in the story of the baptism of Jesus, what happens? The heavens open up. Tommy read this verse for us from Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that's ripping the heavens open, and come down, God. Would you come down and do amazing things and shake this world, is what Isaiah prayed for. Well, that's what happened at the baptism of Jesus, because Mark, chapter 1, uses the same word. It says, the heavens were torn open, and the, the dove descended from heaven. And landed upon Jesus. And the Spirit of God came upon him in that moment and descended and rested upon him. And John says, this is the one of whom I saw the Spirit come down and remain on him. Remain on him. Now, does that remind you of anything from the Old Testament storybook days? Anybody? Anyone? The dove comes down from heaven. And the floodwaters part and... and the Savior emerges. You know, Noah's Ark, right? You, you got the floodwaters. You got the Ark of Salvation where the people were saved from God's wrath and the promise was given to them. And as the waters recede, as the Ark emerges, as Noah comes out, what happens? Eventually the, the dove comes because it's found a tree where there's a, a branch with an olive shoot. And he, he's carrying his mouth to say there is dry land again. There is hope again. There's life again. And that's the promise and that's what we're seeing here is that God is anointing and confirming and pointing out, this is my son, the Prince of Peace. He's a safe place. He's the only safe place in the world. And John says, I saw that happen. I saw heaven open, the Spirit come down, and I heard God say, behold my son, my beloved one, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to his testimony. Believe and have life. John says, this is the one that I saw. He's the true baptizer. Verse 33, he says, I baptize with water. H2O. Now, he didn't probably have chemistry classes back then, so he probably would have just said water. But he says, 
But we're working with fluid here. We're working with fluid dynamics here. This is what we're dealing with. But there's one coming who's greater than me who will actually baptize you not with water or anything earthly, but with the eternal Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. I'm baptizing you for repentance. What does that mean? Baptizing you for repentance. It means if you repent of your sins and turn to God, we're marking you out as a disciple saying, here, we're going to wash you in the water, which is a sign showing that you're clean because of your repentance before God. Jewish people believed that repenting led to cleansing. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me. I want a contrite, humble heart. When I have a broken heart for my sin and I repent of it, God, I know that you'll wash me clean. That's what he's doing. He's showing that symbolically this is what's happening to repentant people. But he says, but there's someone who's coming after me, who's before me, and he baptizes not just with water for repentance, but with the Holy Spirit, and the other Gospels even add, and with fire. What's the difference? One is a religious symbol, outward, pointing to an inner reality. The other one is the inner reality, coming into the life of the sinner. He's baptizing me with God himself. I'm being immersed in God. He's pouring God over me. No human can do that. John, what gives you the right to baptize with water? You must be someone special. You think I'm special? Wait till you see the one who actually baptizes you with life itself, with God himself. He's the one. We're not worthy. He makes me who I am. John 3.34 says that Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit without limit. It's amazing. There's no limit to God. He keeps giving himself and giving what we need day after day. Now, how does that relate to what the Pharisees did when they come from Jerusalem? And they say, John, who are you? We have to go back and give a report. We're the religious inspectors. We're the fruit inspectors. We're going to look at the fruit of your life. We're going to look at your ministry and your words. We're going to compare them to what we know is true. So we're going to check off our boxes. We're going to put you in our box. We're going to make sure everything is kosher. Make sure everything's copacetic. How do you check out? And he says... We're dealing with the one who gives the spirit without limit, beyond borders, where my feet can't touch anymore because there's, it's an ocean of truth and grace, grace upon grace. He says, you think you're going to contain this Messiah and understand and keep him in check? He gives the spirit without limit. He changes hearts. He changes minds. He can't even change your mind, Pharisees and priests and Levites. When we come to this Jesus, who is the true baptizer, the anointed one, the chosen one, we begin to identify with him. This is really what baptism is about. It's about identification with Jesus. When you were baptized, perhaps you were an infant, perhaps you were an adult, perhaps you were somewhere in between. It was about you identifying with the Lord as one of his people. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. The Israelites were all baptized into Moses. Okay, so they had their own baptism back then. When they crossed the Red Sea, you remember what happened? The, the waters parted, and they walked through, and they didn't get wet. So how do you get baptized into Moses when you didn't get a drop on you? Anyone? It's identification. Who actually got wet? The Egyptians. They drowned, right? The Israelites, they were baptized into Moses under the cloud and in the sea, but they didn't actually get wet. That's because this is about Identification. We belong to Moses. He's leading us out. He's our representative. He's our mediator. God has shown him favor. And if we listen to Moses and follow him out, we're shown favor too. We're rescued from slavery. We're entering into freedom. Baptism is about identification. And if, if it's about identification, then why would Jesus 
himself be baptized? I know some of you have asked this question before. How can Jesus, who is sinless, submit himself to the baptism of John, his cousin? And John said, I'm not worthy. And he says, let's do this, John. Why? Why did Jesus say he was going to be baptized by John? To do what? Fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner, but to identify with us. We were required to fulfill the law of God and to to keep it. And Jesus said, I'm going to come down and become a servant. And I'm going to keep the law. And even the Jewish law of baptism, I will identify with you. Even though there's no sin in me to be washed away, I'm going to come so close that I'll do everything you should have done. And we'll trade places in the gospel. You take on my righteousness, and I'll take on your sin and your shame. I'll give you my honor and blessing, and I'll take on your curse and your shame. It's about identification. Baptism is a sign. John's saying, I'm just giving you a water sign. It's just the outer fluid over your body or you're being immersed in it, however it happened. And he says, but there's a greater reality, the Spirit of God, which is actually the truth that I'm pointing to. Just like the ring that I'm wearing on my finger signifies, or is the sign, to my marriage, which is the real thing. If I take this ring off, I'm still married. If I give you a map and say, here's the map, is that the real thing? Is that your journey and your destination all on a flat piece of paper or on your screen? No, it's the sign pointing to the reality. Baptism is just a sign pointing you to the journey and life with God forevermore. Some people say, okay, baptism. I was baptized in water. I confess that I believed in Jesus. But then they start saying, but if you're a true Christian, what do you need? A second baptism. And this is what some Christians call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need a second work of grace, they say. Okay, it's fine to just say, I believe in Jesus, please Jesus, save me from my sins. And they believe that somehow the Spirit of God does do something in your heart and makes you a child of God. But then they say, if you want to be a really legit Christian, you need to be able to do what? Speak in tongues, right? I mean, don't we know that all true Christians speak in tongues? Well, not what Paul said. Some true Christians speak in tongues. But many others do not, because we're all given different gifts according to the Spirit, how He wills. So, so is it true that we must be baptized some additional time so that we begin speaking in tongues or doing something else really obvious that we're Christians, really obvious that something is changing us? I would suggest that Jesus and John don't mention that in any of the Gospels. That Paul never mentions it in his letters that you need a second baptism. There's a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit when God comes into your life. And guess what? Some of us are living as if we haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But it's not because we haven't experienced conversion, perhaps. Maybe it's because we're not doing what the Bible does command us to do a second time and a third time and have a second work of grace and a third work of grace and a fourth work of grace and a ten billionth work of grace. We are supposed to be walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. That's what Paul commands Christians to do. Ephesians 5, be filled or continually keep being filled with the Spirit of God. Who in here has um, a water filter on your faucet at home? Raise your hand. Got a water filter or maybe the Brita pitcher? Good idea. We live in Chicago. Good idea, okay? Chicago's kind of nervous right now. They're sending out water test kits. I did mine a couple months, about a month ago. You fill up your test kit. You send it off. They tell you if you have too much lead in your pipes. Probably do, okay? They're nervous. They're trying to avoid the lawsuits like Flint, Michigan. So they're giving us opportunities to test our water and maybe get free filters if it's bad enough. So if you change your filter 
and you got it all squared away, and, and now the water's clean, would it make any sense then to never turn your faucet on and fill your pitcher up or your glass again? That's like being baptized in the Holy Spirit, becoming a Christian, and never being filled with the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. He changes your heart. He filters out everything's bad. He, he replaces your heart, gives you transformation. But if you say, well, that's good. Now I'm going to go back to my normal, regularly scheduled life. Then it's like you're never using what was given to you. You're never pouring it out day after day, receiving the mercy that is there for you. Are you living Christian in doubt, in weakness, in daily struggle, and you're not accessing that continual outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's given without measure? Brothers and sisters, I don't know how to say it any more clearly. Some of us are not walking in the Holy Spirit. We're living as if we went to Sunday school and got a couple answers and we showed up for church on Sunday. That's enough. But we're still living as if we were never changed or touched by the one who is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins and then calls us to walk in holiness. He gives the Spirit without measure. Like Niagara Falls. I'm going to go do a wedding in New Hampshire for Ben and Rebecca and Paul. And on the way back, we're passed by Niagara. Sure kids. Where we had our honeymoon. The waters just pour over the lip. Over and over. Tons of gallons per day. And it just keeps coming. Niagara filling the lake below. That's the experience that a Christian can have. is a daily receiving of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You're called to be filled with the Spirit. Be baptized in the Spirit and continue living that experience out day after day. So, in closing, who do you say that you are today? We know who John is. He's just a voice crying out, pointing to the, the true Messiah, the true prophet, the true greater Elijah, the greater Moses, the true prophet, priest, and king. He says, he's the one. We know who Jesus is, but who are we in light of this testimony? I love what I saw Joe doing on Friday. I'm not trying to say this just because he's the new pastor, because I've seen others of you doing this as well. But it's just fresh in my mind. He comes in on Thursday night, tired, exhausted. And the next morning, he shows up for work. And as the kids begin to get dropped off for camp, and his parents begin to pick them up at the end of the day, he's just hanging out, introducing himself to people. And you know what he kept saying when there was an opportunity? I grew up on the south side, you know, been away for a while, but I'm just here to tell people my story. Just to be a testimony about what God has done in my life. And I heard him tell someone in the van as we dropped her off the hospital later that day his, his testimony in a nutshell. And that's what our lives are about. There's really nothing about me you need to know about. I just want to tell you what Jesus did to me. I want to tell you who Jesus is in my life. I'm not the light. He's the true light. I'm not the center of the stage. I'm just the stage hand. He's the true baptizer. Even John the Baptist isn't the true baptizer. It's, it's him who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And some of us have believed the modern lie that it's actually more humble to not ever be a witness to Jesus. That we'll just let our actions speak. Because people will say that's more tolerant. You know, I don't want to hear about Jesus or I don't want to hear you talking about him. So we just say, well, I'll just keep living a good life and hoping that they catch on and that maybe somehow by my actions, they'll somehow understand the gospel in some parable form. And it'll all make sense to them. And then they'll repent and believe and be transformed by the Spirit, just like I was. Jesus says, okay... You've got some things right there, which is you need to be patient and don't force yourself on people. You need to be a good listener and sensitive to where people are at. Yes, you got that part right. But eventually, eventually, if you are living a good life bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you need to open your mouth and be a witness to who Jesus is and to who you truly are. You need to let them know 
who you are in Christ. Let's pray and ask God to give us the courage to believe the gospel today and to be witnesses to it. Father, we thank you so much for giving us a testimony this morning of one of the greatest men that ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus said he was the greatest, born of women. But even he bowed low before you and recognized his utter smallness, his utter sinfulness. And and we recognize today, God, I pray by faith that you are the Son of God. You are the Holy One. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you're the one that baptizes us with God himself. Lord, if we're asking ourselves the question today, what do I want out of life? What will make me significant? What will save me? There's only one answer. It's you, Jesus. Help us to hear and believe this testimony. And help us to be like John, willing to tell when people ask. And willing to to ask them questions that will lead us to that opportunity to share how great you are. Lord, we're not worthy to keep our mouths shut. You're so worthy, we must open our mouths at some point and speak about the light of the world who shines in the darkness. Even if the darkness does not receive you or understand you, God, help us to be patient and prayerful for our friends and our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, that eventually they might see and hear of the glory of Jesus Christ and receive grace upon grace, upon grace upon grace, even as many of us have as well. And if there's someone here today, God, that needs the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that needs to know Jesus Christ for the first time, would you draw them to yourself? Would you give them the courage to ask questions and to come to you, the Lamb of God, who will take away their sin and fill them with all they need for life and godliness? We pray this prayer in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior our Messiah, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Amen.